Hello and welcome to Unapologetically Successful. My name is Susanna Helia and we are here today with Dr. Philippa McCarthy, who has agreed to be interviewed and share with us her story of what shaped her life and what moments in her childhood and in life made Philippa to become the successful woman. Welcome, Philippa. Thank you so much for having us at your beautiful home in Watson's Bay. Beautiful Sydney afternoon. I was actually on the way here speaking to a friend saying, just watching you, how you board your next business has been a learning exercise because there's a particular process and a mindset that you have. But maybe we should go to where it all started. I probably came to business quite late because I did medicine and had a baby in final year, which wasn't the best timing. I graduated the year after a double graduation at Sydney Uni. I got to the end of my intern year and in those days you could say to people, go home and look after your baby, which was incredible, pretty, pretty terrible. But I managed to get onto a, I don't even know how I got it, it was a part-time residency program for a year and I did six months at Crown Street Women's Hospital, which was still open at that stage and I did six months at the Children's Hospital. So that was actually quite good. And then I went back and worked in emergency just as a part-time resident. I'll take it back just because I know this. You actually studied at Sydney University. Well, that was funny because I went from school where it's a small pond and I was one of the brightest in my year and then I went into medical school at Sydney Uni, which which at that point in time was the hardest school to get into. So it naturally had all the smartest kids in it. And I felt like an absolute dunce. And it was a hard because it was a five-year course that they had basically taken the six-year curriculum and taken away all our holidays. And then you go from that into an internship, which again, working every third night. And it was a tough year. I was 20 two years old, you've got a lot of growth hormone, you can take it on. So what happened was I did this part-time residency work and then didn't really have any huge inkling to do specialist training, mostly because it was very hard to get into at that point. I was already behind the eight ball, I had a child. So I had done a little bit of general practice and I didn't love that so I was what am I going to do I don't want to be a general practitioner my dad had was a general practitioner medicine because I you had good marks and you could get into marks and could get into it I basically when I did my admission university admission I put down medicine law architecture I didn't really mind what I got into in retrospect, it's a great degree to have because there's a lot of things you can Opportunities. do with it. But at the time, I guess I fell into it. I loved science. I had loved biology. There were parts of it that I liked. But it was a very hard course. And then, of course, they just cram all this information into your brain, which 95% you're never going to use again. And then I came out the other end thinking, what am I going to do? And I was talking to a first-year medical student when I was working in emergency at North Shore who told me about a Master of Public Health that they did at Sydney Uni. And the 
professor who ran that course had been one of the few professors that I'd really liked in my undergraduate degree. So I thought, oh, that sounds good. But I signed up for this master's. Because of the professor. Because of the professor. And it was the best decision I've made in my life because, one, it was an incredible course. <clears throat> we studied, we, we were taught the scientific method, which bizarrely we hadn't been taught at the medical school. As undergraduate medical students, we did epidemiology, which would have been re very relevant in the past few years. And I just loved it. I don't know what it was about the course. It was small. We really got to know the people we were studying with. Everyone was really interesting. It was so different from my undergraduate experience. And this is all with the one with the child at home? Yeah, and working as a GP locum because I had to earn money. Okay. <laughs> so I did that year, got to the end of the year and attempted to apply for a medical administration training scheme, which had just started, and I didn't get the job. Even though you had... Even though I had, a, I had completed... A master, the qualification. The, the coursework for a Masters of Public Health, which I was better qualified than everyone else. And one of the guys that I had done that master's year with, he got into the scheme. So it was like the double whammy. Why didn't they want me? So I was so upset about the fact that I didn't get onto this scheme that I started applying for jobs right. in hospitals with no experience. And uh, I, I got an interview, which was astonishing given that I had no experience. Right. And I get into the interview and they're saying, and what experience have you had? <laughs> okay. I haven't had any experience, but I know I'd be really good at this <laughs> job. <laughs> so you had something within you that you just kept on going. You knew. Oh, just crazy, Or was it a survival? Crazy naivety, I think, is probably the best And how way old to, were you then? To describe it, 24? So very young. Young. Yeah. Okay. But look, I kept, I kept looking for a job. And eventually I got a job as the assistant medical superintendent at the Pian Hospital, which, just to give you some context, the, the doctor's dispute was on at the time. All the surgeons and physicians in hospitals were on strike because they didn't like some clause that the federal government was going to use against them. And the doctors at Nepean had actually got on strike before the doctor's dispute because they were in dispute with the existing medical superintendent. So I walked into this kind of political situation. But it was funny because there was a lot of stuff that needed to be done in the hospital to get it. So did you have inside you some kind of a drive or knowing or was it? I don't know how I knew how to do this stuff because it wasn't medical. It was organisational, but it was like, I don't know, I could just see what was wrong. For example, the biggest problem was that I had all these department heads that were just wrong. They were either lazy, didn't turn up to work, <laughs> just bad attitude. And I just knew instinctively that if you didn't have good people at the top, you're not the gonna culture you, is... the culture's all wrong. So I started firing people. 
So it was it was just the most incredible. Because you would have been just just coming into that position, you would have been twenty five. You would have been releasing from employment. Let's be (laughs) people that were a lot older than me and and who had never been challenged. And I remember there was this one particular guy. He just didn't even turn up to work most of the time. And I kept saying to people, "What the hell is going on?" Oh, he's always done that. So So there was this complacency that really. Where did you think you got the confidence? It was interesting because once I had the doctors on side, once they saw what I was doing was actually going to improve the quality of the services in the hospital, that I actually was doing things to make it a better place for them to work, they were supportive of what I wanted to do. And once I had their support, I'd had the board's support. They genuinely wanted the hospital to reach its potential and to become a teaching hospital. So what happened after? So I went to the Royal Hospital for Women, but the difference was there were all these factions and they all hated each other and they just spent their whole time fighting. It was very different and it was very hard to get a clear agenda and almost impossible to implement any effective change it was really tough because for every 10 percent of good there was 50 percent bad there and I actually got to the stage and I remember talking to a friend of mine and we just were convinced that the place had been built on an aboriginal burial ground because these terrible things kept happening what was your psyche at that time Um, I remember having a conversation with one of my colleagues who was very funny but also quite paranoid, I think, and I remember her saying to me almost like conspiratorial, they're out to get you and all this sort of stuff. And I was a horse rider at that point in my life and I used to ride every weekend and I can remember I was riding through these beautiful fields of wildflowers in Davidson Park in Belrose and and talking to her and I just said I'm just not that important I'm just like she this woman had almost implied that I was conspiracy against me personally and I just said to her I'm just not important enough and then the end what happened was there was an incident where there were a number of infections in the neonatal intensive care unit And the acting director put out a memo saying, we've had a number of infections. Everybody's got to be really on the ball, diligent about infection control. That's it. That's all he said. And it got leaked to the press. And so the whole thing blew up. Everybody bought into it. But at the end of the day... You get infections in hospitals. That's like it's okay. Everybody plays it down. Yeah. But it's one of the biggest causes of incidence and Mm. mortality in hospitals is infection. Hospital acquired infections. 250,000 infections a year was when when I was still in the hospital system. So it's a lot. There was a meeting. They decided it was my fault. That there were infections in the hospital? No, it was my fault 
because when I saw that memo, I should have got the director to withdraw it and shut the whole thing down. And I stood in the meeting and I said, that's not how it works. You don't shut it down. You don't hide it. This isn't about publicity. The concern is the health of the patients. I walked out of that meeting distraught because I just felt that these people were out to get me. It didn't matter. They were going, they were actually going to fabricate something. It was about a bunch of people feeling threatened. I've got a friend who I went to university with who studied in America and was probably one of the leading interventional obstetricians for doing fetal interventions. I don't know what she did, but people's noses got out of joint and she ended up leaving and going back to practicing obstetrics. Now, what a loss to this country, number one, that someone's travelled and worked overseas and got skills, brought them back and been run out of town because of some, I don't know whether it was a sexist thing, I don't know whether it was, it was about a bunch of male doctors feeling threatened by a highly educated female who was better than them at doing the job and they got rid of her. And that's the awful underbelly of hospital politics. It's still around. And at that point in time, there were Prince of Wales Private was on the cards yep. to be built and Royal North Shore Private was on the cards to be built. So both were advertising for CEOs and I got the job at Prince of Wales. And so I finally thought, finally, I'm going to get to run something. And it was such a baptism of fire. It was really tough. And so I ended up leaving there. I left my job on Friday afternoon. Normally when I left a job on Friday, I had a new job to go to on Monday. And this was like the only time in my life where I actually left a job on Friday and I didn't have a job to go to on Monday and everyone went, oh, that's so good. You can look after your baby. And that was really good for the weekend. And then on Monday, I freaked out completely. And I thought, what can I do? Because it takes a few months to get a management job. So I thought, I can be a doctor. So I rang up this agency that I'd worked for when I did my master's and the same woman was running it. And I said, have you got any work? And she goes, when can you start? I said, tomorrow. And she just threw me in the deep end. I hadn't been near a patient for 20 years. Which in itself I question sometimes. It took me three months to get a role and that role was really the role that led me to the next. I discovered the hospital I was running, was going bust. I took the hospital through voluntary administration. I sold it. Even though I'd been 20 years managing these huge multi-million dollar organisations, try running a hospital when you've got to ring the bank every week to make payroll. It's a very different experience. So it 
taught me in a very short period of time what not to do in business, which I think is what really everybody who wants to go into business needs to have the what not to do in business experience. So I had got to the stage in my life where I really wanted to own my own business. I really wanted to have my own show. And I don't know why it had taken me so long to get to that position. So how old were you then? 40. Early 40s. Yeah. You have done all of the administrative work. Yeah. You. I guess I just had the confidence that I knew what not to do. Now, if we look at coming to this point, there is resilience and... <laughs> Maybe unconscious (laughs) confidence come to your business idea. Was there something in you that you believed that made you the right person for the job or the right person in situation? I don't know. You come from a family where your father was a doctor? Yeah, but he had no business sense. My mum, surprisingly... Even though she had never, she was a nurse, she had never worked commercially. She was the more commercial of them. She looked after the money. She had dabbled in property development and quite successfully until it wasn't. And so I had learnt quite a lot from her. And I don't know, I hate to say that I had a natural... It was in you. But I didn't do any training. And I think I'm quite good with picking the right people. I think that's a huge element in organisational success. And I had a lot of common sense, which a lot of people don't have, surprisingly. People do really stupid things all the time. And I think there's a lot of, there can be a lot of groupthink in organisations. And I think I was always slightly individualistic, individualistic, but also just not necessarily needing to go with the herd. I know the answer already, but for the listeners, there is something that happened in your childhood that was transformative for you to set you on a trajectory of not needing to be part of a herd of knowing that there is something that you have that carried you so I know that because we've discussed this before you came home from school got 100% marks and your mum said something to you will you share that with so I can still remember it was probably fourth or fifth grade at school And I can't remember, it was probably maths. I was very good at maths. And maths is something you can get 100% in. And I got 100% and I came home and my mother was like, of course, you got 100%. Like her expectation was, that's what you get. What Did your other siblings? No. (laughs) Okay, so that was specifically to Philippa. Of course, you got 100%. And what did she say? I can remember thinking at the time, that wasn't that hard. I can do this. And I had a photographic memory that really helped. And 
I guess I had this mother that just had this unshakable belief in my ability. And my father had been very, a very good student because he came from a very poor family and the only way that he ever got to even go to high school was to get a scholarship. So he got a scholarship to, I think he even had a scholarship for late primary school, high school, so university, So she made college. you believe that you inherited his... 100%. His smartness. 100%, yeah. Whereas I actually think I'm a bit of a blend. I think I've got a lot of her... We tend to be our own worst yeah. critics, but yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I think the, look, definitely the commercial side of me is from her and... My dad was a bit of a nerd. He was very bookish and very quiet. And I can remember when I left clinical medicine and went into administration, he was devastated because he just couldn't understand how I could not want to be a doctor. And then when I left admin and wanted to go into my own business, he was devastated. <laughs> it's like, why do you want to leave your really stable job? <laughs> it's like he just, and obviously... He didn't have that sense of adventure or sense of, or not sense of adventure, risk-taking behaviour, but my mother had that. He was prepared to go out on a limb a little bit. So now we go back again in the story. Yeah, I started looking for a business to buy. So why, what, were, what was the thought that you should be buying a business? Because most people don't go around thinking that they should be buying a business. I don't, look, that's a really good question. I actually don't know why I suddenly thought I need to buy a business. But I guess a combination of my age and that I wanted something that at least had some income attached to it. And it's really interesting because I don't know, I guess I had learned in that year, I'd learned about margin because we were running a business that had one, had none. Yeah. I'd learned about some of the basics around what characteristics you need to look for in a business. But fundamentally, I was just looking for a profitable business to buy. And where you, so even though you had a medical degree, you were a yeah. doctor, you've done a lot of administration and management work, you have then identified that what it takes to actually guide business for liquidation and sale. Was there a particular industry you were looking for? No. Completely agnostic. Because I have to say I've seen this recently, which is interesting because you have followed a very similar process yes. the second time around. Yeah. We've looked at businesses for businesses. framing to auctioneering yeah. to yeah. Import, Whatever. export, yeah. anything. Yeah. So that was the same story. Yeah. So it's only a coincidence was, that you it, ended up in cosmetics. It, it totally, and, and it was interesting because I can remember I was reading businesses for sale in the Sydney Morning Herald one Saturday morning and there was a laser clinic. Well, it was a high-end beauty and laser clinic for sale. And I thought that could be quite a good business for me because I would have a database within that business of women that I could promote myself to as a doctor because advertising as a doctor was very frowned upon 
Obviously, it's completely changed now. But 22 years ago, doctors who advertised were considered very poor doctors. So that was my logic initially. Then I started looking at the laser part of the business and did a little bit of research on who else was offering services, what sort of prices there were, and it was very early days in lasers, so there were very few competitors, so that was tick. And the margin was good. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about beauty. I literally had probably had waxing. That was about it. But I thought it's an area that I'm happy to learn. Yeah. And... It was a profitable business. So you bought one clinic? One clinic. Can we discuss? It was called the Casey Clinic. It was in the Edgecliff Centre. And I walked in there and it was just marvellous. So you straight away knew? Straight away knew. And in fact, it was interesting because I felt that I needed to be working and doing stuff and I started doing GP locums. And very quickly I worked out that I could actually run a skin business within this clinic because there were so many people who had skin problems. Yeah. And that was because laser hair removal at the start was very heavily supported by women with polycystic ovarian syndrome who had too much hair and they often had acne. So it was like I had a built-in acne practice just waiting for me. And the treatments they were doing were rubbish. So I had to then learn how to treat acne properly. And I ended up going to America and doing some study with a guy called Zenabaji, who's one of the most brilliant dermatologists in the world. And uh, I came back and I felt like I had been handed the golden key to the mystery of life. It was just so great. So you bought one clinic for what they were offering as a service. It was quite a, for its time, it was quite a leader because it had been one of the first laser clinics in Sydney, except they didn't have the right laser. They had been one of the first clinics to do microdermabrasion. Now everybody knows what microdermabrasion is. It's probably one of the commonest entry treatments into Cosicin along with skin peels and they did skin peels but they weren't very good ones they did this Casey non-surgical facelift treatment which is actually an amazing galvanic electric current treatment that has been around for a very really long time but was very cleverly commercialized by this Casey company in England and it was huge, like Keith Richard. No, not Keith Richard. Cliff, what's his name? Cliff Richard did Casey treatments and he had that very youthful look and he was one of their poster boys. And it was great treatment. That was a good treatment, but it was a very difficult treatment to actually administer. You had to be quite skilled to administer it. So I had this clinic that looked like X when I bought it and very quickly over the next 12 months I started changing it and then after a couple of years I realized that I actually I'd started making products 
for, because I couldn't get what I needed, formulating and making stuff in the kitchen. I had bought back Obagi's products from the States, but at that stage, I think the dollar was 46 cents to the US dollar. Oops. I had Obagi, which was really expensive, and then I had Home Brand for all my young acne because I had a big young adult acne practice, mostly university students, so they couldn't afford Obagi, so they were buying Home your, your product. And then the women would see these white, the girls go into the kitchen and come back with these white pumps. And they'd go, what's that? And the girls on the desk would go, oh, that's the home brand. Why can't I have that? You can. It's just the home brand. You have to keep it in the fridge. And they go, oh, I don't mind doing that because it's a tenth tenth the price. price. Yeah, so then I got to the stage where I was just making so much product. I started looking for a manufacturer and I did my first manufacturing run in 2001. So I'd bought the clinic end of 1999. So, so two years pretty, later, yeah. you already have so much that you're manufacturing yeah. product. You yeah. still have only one clinic? Still only have one clinic. And you're still doing this on your own already? Still with you? doing this on my own, loving it. And I remember I took my first delivery of product at my home and I had a room that I cleared out and the room was full of boxes of product to the ceiling, literally every square inch of a room that was probably three metres by three metres. That's a lot of product. And I remember looking at it and thinking, what have I done? What have I done? And then I thought, I just have to sell it. And I did. And then in 2004, I had a story on Today Tonight that Honestly and truly, it was just, it was crazy. And we got 2,000 emails. The phones rang off the hook. I quickly ran around the country because it was a national program. I trained a doctor in Melbourne. I trained a doctor in Brisbane. I didn't have anyone in WA. And it was just nuts and one of my staff who was actually had gone off and was doing PR but kept coming back in the afternoons. and So how many staff members you had by that stage? I probably had maybe three or four therapists, a receptionist and Alana who was had been a receptionist and then wanted to do PR so she'd gone off to do PR but used to come back in the afternoons and do marketing for me. And when this story broke, her whole family literally came in and were packing product. We ran out of product, like within days, yeah. which is the worst thing that can happen to you. And, and she said to me at the end when we came up for air after a couple of weeks, she said to me, we need another clinic. And I just said to her, look, if you do all the work, I'll go into partnership with you and that's how you started that's how that we growing the clinics clinic because at the end when you sold which is you sold in 2018 18 yeah. you sold for 129 29 million yeah. and pretty good return on 300,000 on 300,000 <laughs> and how many 44 clinics I actually like the story so the story goes Alana goes and counts how many people are coming for the intersection <laughs> no the reason twofold reason she wanted to do clinics with me was 
she saw what happened with the Today Tonight thing. So it was like, this can be big. Yeah. She was really young. She's the same age as my son. So she's 22 years younger than me. And she, we had a six-week waiting list to even get an appointment at Edgecliff and we were busting at the seams. It was so busy. It was great, but it was really busy. And she just said to me, why don't we pick up the waiting list and take it to a new clinic? And that's what we did. And so we found premises. Her father was going to come in initially as a partner as well. And she bought him out within six months. And the worst thing that happened, which was the therapist that we were taking as the head therapist to Bondi Junction, who had a very big following, walked out on us and opened up in competition. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire with the second clinic. But look, we had all these amazing staff who were so pissed off with her for doing that that they just all rose to the occasion. And Bondi Junction was really successful despite her doing that. With one of our clients backing her, we found out later. Great. But this stuff happens. This in happens business though. all the time. Yeah. There's no there's no Is she still in business? Look, she is still in business. She has it it didn't pan out. She was hoping to do the multi clinic thing as well, but she just still has the one clinic in Bondi Junction. I think she's had some kids now. She okay. did a skincare range and <laughs> <laughs> we're not we don't talk bad. No. But interesting because within a fairly short period of time, so from nineteen ninety-nine when you bought the first clinic to 2018, yeah. which is 19 years. Just under 20 years. Yeah. You sold for $129 million. But <laughs> interestingly, someone tried to copy exactly the same and was not able to do that, whereas the two of you were able yes. to keep on growing. Yes. We were very lucky. Alana's father became one of our main funders. So we were able to overcome the problem of most small businesses which is you just can't get loans because the clinics were very capital intensive up front so the deal that we had with Tony was he funded the clinics funded the capital and then for a share and then he got paid back first which was a great deal six months later yeah <laughs> yeah pretty quickly usually and because, again, we were riding this wave of this being a very new business and their, like Edgecliff literally used to have people coming from all over Sydney. So we would work out where our clients were coming from and we'd go and open a clinic there. So the next clinic after Bondi Junction was Parramatta and Parramatta ended up being a huge clinic. And then by the end of the journey, had gotten small again because there were just so many. So many opened up. Then we went to Cremorne, then we went to Leichhardt, then we went to the city, then we went to Brisbane with a partner that found us through Today Tonight. And then... So how did you get onto the Today Tonight? Look, that was through a doctor friend of mine who was practising the same 
protocols as I was. And I don't know, one of, I think one of her clients that she treated very successfully had a contact there. It was so very serendipitous. if we look at it, oh, what brings people to success? It's, if you would summarise that. Look, I think from my experience, tenacity is really important. I have been interestingly criticised by when I left the private hospital, I had an exit interview and he said to me, you know what, you've got to learn when to let go. And it was the worst bit of advice I've ever been given because... Maybe you should thank him. I should thank him. Because you became... I thank him because, you know, that dogged determination in the face of everybody saying stop (laughs) has to me been the most critical thing to my success that I just don't. One of the things that became very apparent with the clinics was because the beauty industry is a very snake oil driven industry and I think having had that incredibly amazing experience of working in these top hospitals with top specialists and seeing what made them really special I wanted to emulate that in what I was doing I wanted to do the best treatments at the best prices for our clients. So I had that kind of public hospital ethos of inclusion. Which is what drove you to success. So that training that I had in my master's in how to do research was so critical for me when I was trying to find treatments, new treatments in particular, or the best treatments because I was having papers constantly coming across my desk saying this does this. So we were constantly trialling and I had this amazing set of clients who would do anything that I asked them to do. So I was able to test out everything that that some study said worked before we introduced it into our product mix and that worked incredibly successfully both for the service part of what we did in the clinics but also for the products and you see no one else was doing it because there were the plastic surgeons who were doing surgery the dermatologists in Australia are so busy doing dermatology they don't do cosmetic dermatology there was the beauty industry doing its stuff there were starting to be the cosmetic clinics but They were either just doing concentrating on injectables or they were doing very invasive laser treatments. So there was no one in the space where we we were of offering affordable, effective treatments to improve the quality of people's skin, fix their pigmentation, fix their scarring, fix their acne, prevent their ageing and offering affordable laser treatments that were relatively non-invasive and 
it really was that background that I had in 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 research and in in the public hospital system that really I, I think you. was quite unique. Yeah, that I really saw the benefit of making treatment affordable, which is which was anti everybody else in the industry because <laughs> they were just wanting to make treatment as unaffordable as possible. They were looking at their margins. I it was guess. all. I we not yeah yeah. So you sold, then you were not allowed to work for about many. I'm still under a restraint. And you and I had a great opportunity looking at number of businesses yep. to buy yep. again, replicate the same. Interestingly, yet again, you bought a business that is very new. And within the, you're not even a first month in it, but it looks like that it's making already money. And it's another replica of what you've done before. I've seen you go through that process of the due diligence and really not having any ego in, I can be doing this industry or that industry. You just focused on, I want to be busy. I want to be making money. I want to work really hard. I love working. I'm I, and that really helps. Yeah. I think and and when I look at my partners, they were all incredibly hard workers. And again, that's not something that you can teach people. That's something that's inside inside people. you. And but it's like my main business partner Alana, she comes from a very financially comfortable family. She didn't have to be busting her guts to work like she did for me and had four children in, in the process while all of that was happening. all of that was going on in fact when she had her third child we used to talk out of hours a lot because she had kids and I was talking to her one Sunday morning about some great new idea I had and we're chit-chatting away and I just said to her where are you and she said oh, I'm in the hospital <laughs> I said did you have the baby? She goes, yeah, I had the baby last night. And she'd just been chatting away, just business as usual. It's hilarious. It's so funny. That's how we did it, though. And, uh, and when I look at all my other partners, they're all just extraordinary. I think I will always do that. I don't want to retire. I'm a worker. So the theory that I believe so is that successful people work because they enjoy work yes they also work but there is something inside which i think for some people is conscious for others subconscious or unconscious and also i think the other thing that i've learned is it, i just see opportunities and i think that it was like when with this new business like i knew pretty much straight away it took it and was, we looked at that one business, yeah. which was interesting experience. And then truly, it was like 24 yeah. hours later. Yeah. And within a week, when I had talked to the owner, just worked out what I was looking at, I just, then I started to freak out that someone else would realize and beat me to it. But luckily, no one else was. And it had been on the market for a number of weeks, which was extraordinary to me that someone else hadn't just realised this little jewel. And But I think that's part of it as well. It is 
recognising opportunity. And look, you don't always get it right. Like we had some absolute howlers of things that we did wrong. But again, you realise when something's not working and you cut your losses and you don't. As they say, if you're failing, fail fast. Yeah. Yeah. Comes from experience because the more it's experience and then you're trusting yourself and in a way it would be wonderful if you could teach that I I do believe that your mum telling you when you were in the fourth grade getting 100% marks that you've got the smart gene in the family becomes the trust so I must be smart I can keep on going Mm. because You believe you're in yourself. I think self-belief is a really critical thing in life. That, And sadly, for too many women, it gets knocked out of them almost. And once they get into that mindset that they can't do stuff, it's very hard to get self-confidence in some people. I think you've got it. I think I've got it. But equally, I see too many people that don't have it. And I'm just at this point in time, I'm not sure how you help people to overcome that because it's really hard to overcome that, that, that negative self-talk that people who don't have that self-confidence. Because as babies are born, they don't come with limitations. No. Baby comes day one has no limitations. Mm. It's interesting there's a lot of just self-help that believes that there's some seminal event in childhood that starts this process of negative self-talk. I didn't have that, so possibly that's why I don't have it. But Maybe that's not the right way to approach it. Maybe what we should just be concentrating on is teach, giving people strategies to have positive self-thought about themselves. And then that thing of you practice and practice and practice until it becomes second nature. And And hopefully by doing that, you can overcome any of the negative stuff. I don't know. Having, I just think I'm so lucky that <laughs> that wasn't a problem because I think for so many people it's a huge issue in their lives and it's what holds people back. I've probably got the opposite problem. I just probably need to be held back a bit more. You've done well and <laughs> thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to the seeing what chapter. the next chapter brings. We'll do a follow-up. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Philippa. Thank you, everyone.